wondering how in poor taste this choice is, considering it's Thanksgiving. So the focus is on eating. <laughs> and we're going to talk about not food-friendly topics, potentially, depending on your, like, queasiness level. I had not even thought about that. I think, luckily, hopefully people listening will have been recovered from... Also, like, please don't listen to this while you're eating. Yeah, I think that's probably our first not content a time for morning podcasts. for the day. Or for, like, a cooking phase. Like, this is, like, a walk after dinner, maybe. Or, like, in two weeks from now. Yeah. Like, don't get ambitious and try and put this with the cranberry sauce. Because I don't think it's going to go great. No. And I think this is definitely, yeah, like, maybe a long car ride with some friends. And you really are curious. Yeah. I think it's that phase. Which we were. Oh, so So I'm not going to feel shame about that. Because... You gotta, this is a no shame podcast, especially about these topics. Do you want to tell the folks what we're doing today? Yeah. So as regular listeners to Missing History will know, every once in a while, we stumble on a moment where we're just like, that would be so cool to know more about. And a couple of times now we've done that around like personal care, because there's just something really fascinating about like, how did people brush their teeth 200 years ago? Or like take care of their hair or their face like all of these things that eat Mm -hmm. up so much of our day yeah like people in the past must have had similar feelings about their bodies in some way shape or form and i don't know i don't know if you're this person too but like i have a i have a very special relationship with advertisements Mm. in terms of what is marketed and who it's marketed to and why and what are they actually trying to sell you versus what is being sold um We'll get in a little bit with mine, but also um, the narrative that we put around these uh, very human experiences. Everybody does it in a lot of ways. Uh, These are all very universal feelings, but mass marketing to these universal things make it slightly twisted or different or make it a, a different problem to have in an interesting way, which I find fascinating. It's almost like everybody does it, but we're not okay talking about it. Yes. Which is like such a human trait. That, and that is like so much of some of what I was looking at is just like, how do you talk around these things that we can't, that we think are important enough that we've invested a lot of money in advertising to you, but that no one is comfortable saying out loud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. So we we decided to do a hygiene episode and that has now turned into two hygiene episodes because we each have two topics. So... Today, I'm going to take you on a train through feminine hygiene, specifically. Um, and Michael's going to do hair care? Is that yeah, what shampoo and hair care more generally. Okay, great. And then next time, we're going to we're just going to tell you now so that you can prep yourself to come back in a couple weeks when you don't want to hear about this or whatever you want to do. And then next week, we're gonna I'm going to do oral hygiene, toothpaste and toothbrushes specifically, because I find them interesting. And you're doing toilets, all things toilet, (laughs) everything associated there with squatty potties on my list. Is it really? Yeah, there's I mean, unsurprisingly, there is a deep well of things to talk about. But for next week, you ready to get into it? Let's do it. I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the people absent from history class. Spoilers, they're usually female identifying. We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. Today's episode contains strong language. 
Okay, so I guess I'll start this with a question, which is, um, once again, no shame space. What do you know? Do you need any clarification on what happens monthly for most people who have menstruation? I think I'm pretty... As a, as a, as a identified male. Or are you coming in with some knowledge? Speaking uh, for my whole gender... It's my favorite thing to do. Yeah, that, me too, right? It sucks. I think I have a fairly good grasp on the like okay. basic mechanics and sort of what the biology of it. Yeah, the biology class version or like with some re supplemental reading. I think like a little like beyond the basic like ninth grade health knowledge, but okay. nowhere near okay. the like intimate experience of living it by any stretch. Great. So please. Speak up if you need clarification on anything. I don't think I'm diving into anything crazy or hard to grasp. But if anything's confusing, please just Will let me know. Do. So we're going to start with both of my hygiene things. But this one is uh, we're going to sit. We're going to go into uh, pads for the most part for uh, first chunk. And then we'll get into tampons because it's sort of like there's the tried and true pad has been the mainstay for most of our uh, existence. And then tampons are relatively... I mean, they're not new, new, but they definitely have their um, golden age in the 20th century with mm-hmm. like modern technology. So 3000 BC, um, historians believe uh, that Egyptians are making things out of softened papyrus. They do think some of them are tampons, but for the most part, linen and wrapped bits of um, lint or any kind of absorbent material cotton. Mm-hmm. Uh, or found objects, if you're near aquatic life, uh, sea sponges. Interesting. Um, which is uh, kind of found natural items that were seen to be absorbent, were um, thought to have been used. However, history is not written by people who menstruate, <laughs> which is like a tagline for life. <laughs> so I'm going to say this, that for a long time, we just don't know. We don't know. It's not documented. Mm -hmm. You think we don't talk about it now. They definitely didn't talk about it then. And the people talking about it didn't have to deal with it. So it's a very weird conversation. Sort of like one. I mean, they didn't know that your uterus stood in one place for a really long time. They thought the womb was wandering. They didn't have a clue how anything was working down there. Basically, this is a time of like complete ignorance about female anatomy anyway. So... Knowing what was necessary to help you get through those few days a month um, was not being written by the people actually going through it. So there's probably a lot of, like, passed down mother to daughter about how to take care of your business. Mm -hmm. Um, That's both, like, cultural and familial and tribal-based, but we don't have a lot of that knowledge because a lot of the written knowledge is definitely, like, very male sphere. So Totally. That coupled with the fact that they thought our wombs were wandering. They didn't know what was going on down there to begin with. Um, So anyway, all of these sort of very early days is very, very questionable. Rags. Good. uh, you, You have in the olden times when it took a long time to weave a fabric, you would make the use of that fabric as far as it could. And once it couldn't be clothing anymore, it became cleaning rags. Once it didn't become cleaning rags, it would go into the dustbin, you know, and it would it would degrade. And so at a certain point, you then start using the rags for this purpose. Mm-hmm. And so you have the term on the rag. Super oh. cliche, super terrible. Yeah. Um, 
becomes slang. Uh, there's obviously, um, in the medieval period, a lot of good vibes around religion and shame surrounding this menstruation. Um, there's, uh, there's, there's in a lot of cultures, it is seen as an unclean. It's, it's got two phases. There's an unclean aspect and then there's like a holy aspect to it. And depending on the culture you're in is how people are going to deal with you. Um, but in our European dominated way, I'm going to say it's not great. Seen as dirty. And so not a lot of talk about it. And once again, not a lot of discussion or writing down about how people dealt with it back then. But we're going to say probably pretty rudimentary, tie in some, tie in some kind of a diaper around you mm-hmm. um, and you just sort of deal with it and you get a lot of nonsense uh, I'm not going to get into like other treatments that were in use for dealing with your period because they're all kind of silly and nonsensical so we're just going to focus on pads and okay. kind of um, 1850s cotton boom so women are um, now with a lot of skirts and a lot of like the crinoline and stuff like that. There's um, a lot of layers, which is helpful, but you still have to wear something on the base. So there is some cases where um, I've read that you would have certain bloomers that were already red, um, that were like a dark or like dark, dark, dark color mm-hmm. so that that would be sort of your situation under at the base layer. Um a bloomer or a skirt or an underskirt so that you wore specifically for that time of the month. Or you would pin cotton or pin some kind of linen rag, you know, for as much as you needed it. It's all pretty much the same technology for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not really monetizing or marketing it yet um, until we get into, like, solid industrial revolution times when everything is marketed, and that's 1896. So the first commercially available pad is called a Lister towel l-i-s-t-e-r like the but, Listerine company oh not that I'm aware of because the Lister towels come out and no one buys them because no one will admit to having <laughs> a period so they immediately go under and they don't sell any because you just can't and also like imagine the marketing ploy hey this thing that you like totally have handled and you do it for free let's now make that an expense that you already can't you know mm-hmm. accommodate into your budget and by the way you know you don't earn any of the money yet so try and make this argument for your husband so where are we 1896 1922 oh the roaring 20s good for tampons and pads but for pads the menstrual belt is finally patented so somebody somewhere is like you know what we should make these we should make these a thing that um, are more efficient and more um, generic, I guess, in a way. You know, it's not like your mom just tells you how to do it. Like, everyone's going to wear the same mm-hmm. thing in a weird uh, way. So a menstrual belt for, like, well, there's some great pictures I have that if you really want to know. But um, it's a super thin, it's a super thin um, piece of fabric uh, similar to like a suspender or a garter belt looking thing mm-hmm. that goes around your midsection and has like a clip in the front and a clip in the back and then you can like attach underneath. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like a loincloth or something like that. And then that piece can go off and get cleaned or I think in this time, yeah, they're not disposable yet. They're like cotton or uh, linen mm-hmm. still. Um, but then you can change them out more easily and you're not having to go and 
try and pin it underneath a weird skirt. And also, if you think about fashion at this time, having something more discreet and uh, thoughtful about the line that was being created mm-hmm. was helpful for women as well, because you didn't have as much protection of, like, layers and layers and layers. Right. You only had the little flapper dress that had to, like, sneaky something underneath it. What a challenge. 1969, Stay Free is the first time we ever get an adhesive strip. What a game changer. So, gone are the... Well, not immediately, because you gotta phase them out. So, up until 1969, which is within... So recently. (laughs) Just the idea that I know people that wore these belts is mind-boggling to me. The belts start to go away, and you start to get the, like, adhesive strip that, for clarity's sake, because I don't know if everybody saw this TikTok a few months ago, this boyfriend and girlfriend are in the car, and... He has to be, they're all of 18, so he's forgiven because he shouldn't know yet in a lot of ways. But he was so confused because he thought the adhesive went on the body. Did you see that? No, but I could 100% see an 18-year-old boy having that thought. He was like, you you peel the adhesive off and you stick it to yourself. Like a weird, like sufficient diaper that band-aid sticks to situation. you. But doesn't hurt. Yeah, kind of a band-aid, I think. Like... I don't need to think deeply about this, so I won't get the logic. And his girlfriend is just laughing at him. And he's like, what? I don't get it. And she's like, no, it sticks to your underwear. So then you, it, it absorbs what comes out of you in the same way of, you know, it's a basic principle of a diaper. But um, watching him, like, register of like, oh, oh, okay. So anyway, game changer. It can now attach to whatever you're wearing underneath. As garments are changing, too, you know, it's kind of suiting to what women are wearing mm-hmm. underneath more modern clothes. Disposable cotton is becoming manufactured in a way that's super efficient, so it's uh, getting thinner and more absorbent. And they're starting to use more synthetic materials, too, that can be even thinner and even more absorbent than maybe the old traditional methods. So, game changers in the 20th century. And that's the last major invention. <laughs> I mean, then you get the wings. And the wings just kind of help everything stay in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the marketing of like the modern pad is like, how do we make it seem like you're not wearing a diaper when most of them feel like you're wearing a diaper? That's a disclaimer for me. But <laughs> um, not all of them do. Uh, most women, I think the the record, I shouldn't say that. Most people who menstruate um, prefer pads as of right now. I think it's, it's still the more popular option. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about why because we're going to talk about tampons. Okay. Next. So for as long as for as long as it's been around, uh, which is having your period, um, tampons have been a thing because we are all too old to remember what it was like running around with a dirty diaper on. But it's not necessarily the best feeling. I don't know if you need more context than this, but like when you're wearing a pad, there's always a danger element. I guess this is the only way I can describe mm-hmm. it. There's always like a hope this is working, you know, and uh, a lot of trust in your products, you know? Um, And so the idea is that with a tampon, there's just a different level of, I mean, at least for me anyway, there's a different level of protection there. And um, basically they've been trying to figure out tampons for as long as people have had this issue because pads are just so um, clumsy and in the way and the cleaning factor and having to reuse them and You feel like a giant baby sometimes with the way they're made. It's awful. So for ages and ages and ages, people thought that Hippocrates mentioned tampons being made out of lint wrapped around sticks 
Oh, she sounds like a nightmare. Oof. It sounds like a nightmare. Everything before 1920 sounds like an absolute horrendous life. So anyway, but um, a researcher, Helen King, said this is li- likely a mistranslation of ancient Greek. He, he he's saying he's I don't know. There's a there's a discrepancy of like, is he talking about that time of the month or is he talking about genuinely like dressing a wound? Mm-hmm. Which in a lot of ancient texts go kind of hand in hand. It's like, what are they actually talking about? And it's like this can prevent a lot of it, uh, a lot of problems for women who have wounds that happen to be where they get their time, where they get their period. So there's this like weird. I don't know if it's like saving face or like we can't talk about it, but this is how we talk about it mm-hmm. in all of these ancient. Yeah, texts. I mean, I wonder. It's a lot of the research I came across for toilets is like people have euphemisms for it like the same way that we do but you don't explain the euphemisms when you use them because everyone knows them and then when you get like two or three hundred years out all of a sudden no one knows what that euphemism means anymore so then when you're reading it it seems like they're just being super naive about what a woman's body is doing when they can't be that stupid i don't know maybe they can i don't know but the japanese have a record of using tampons for menstrual reasons not just wounds um of paper uh, held in place by a bandage called a comma and K-A-M-A. Um, it sounded like they weren't super great. And in some cases you had to change them up to 12 times a day. 12 times is insane. Like if you think about having to go to the bathroom 12 times a day, if you are, I hope you're okay. I don't think that's normal. <laughs> I'm going to say the average hope would be like between two and six. Two is a lot. I mean, like every two hours is a lot, I should say. You know, that not to cause judgment or whatever, but that's a that's a heavy that's a heavy situation. Um, four to six is av- I mean, I don't know what's average. Everyone's different. Every, it's like fingerprints, man. You can't decide mm-hmm. what what it is because everyone is slightly everybody's body's different, right? So um, 12 times, still a lot. That's a little inconvenient to your day. Okay, so then there's this European plant called blood moss, and they're thinking the reason it gets its name is because of what it was normally used for, which is this occurrence. Mm-hmm. Um, it also seemed to have uh, specifically like blood-stopping qualities for wounds, which go hand in hand. So if you're thinking about like when people are getting hurt in ancient times and they're trying to solve anything that like helps wounds, you're going to figure out what is absorbent and what is mm-hmm. helpful. So then those kind of cross-pollinate into this feature. Um, also had like an astringent quality to it. So that's always great for like staying clean and bandaging wounds in battle. And then women would on the sidebar be like, thank you. We're going to just stockpile this for later because we all need it. Mm-hmm. Um in the fourth centuries, uh, in Sanskrit texts, there's some uh, conversation about using tampons made out of oil and rock salt as contraceptive devices. So still not as an absorbent situation, oh. but more of just like a preventative, we don't need babies. That seems to be a common theme across cultures of like, we will give you a tampon device, but not to help you on the thing that happens regularly every month. You can guarantee it. We're going to try and stop the babies. But we're going to get really freaked out when you need it as, like, preventative maintenance. It's odd. It's odd. 18th century, used as a medical device, definitely uh, comes from the uh, advent of gun warfare and the battlefield of you have these small little targets that need to get uh, addressed mm-hmm. and, and wound closures and things like that. And so we see this tie-in time again. Um, 
1776, French doctor describes uh, a tampon as a tightly rolled vinegar-soaked linen that is used to stop menstrual flow. So it's the first time that we actually put this with this in a medical text. And that's 1776? 1776, yeah. That maybe this could be helpful. But we still like to think of it as like a really helpful contraceptive and that's kind of where it lives for a while because, I mean, a lot of reasons, but um, other materials suggested in the 1800s are lint, flax, cotton, fine wool, sounds terrible, uh, anything soft and absorbent. In the 1879, we get uh, Dr. Aveling's tampon tube, so he actually invents an applicator rather than just the um, device itself, which is, sounds, I mean, now you just have, like, it's it's all self-sufficient, mm-hmm. but this was, like, its own speculum, the tampon, and a device to, like, insert, for lack of a better word. Um, it's all clumsy and terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the pictures cannot be refuted of being... And it's still, like... Nightmare-inducing. Like, like men making a product for 100 percent. oh we're not gonna get to a lady for a while no 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 let alone any research being done about what is helpful or like maybe we should try some stuff out or do a do a feedback session nope they're just making them yeah they like to cover them in antiseptic at this time in the early 20th century because they're worried about bacterial uh, they've got germ theory they're figuring out germ theory but they're not quite sure about like what good bacteria is yet Mm -hmm. or like ph levels or or you know natural ecosystems so they're like yeah just dunk it in glycerin and take it away go for it um during world war one uh, cotton wool and gauze are seeing are becoming more common. So then there's uh, one informs the other in terms of producing that. You also have working nurses, and nurses have to be able to take care of themselves. So they're using a lot of the like medical equipment for themselves. <laughs> you know, there's some helping hands I mm-hmm. think in order to like be able to do their jobs. And then we get here again. We get the 1920s. Big year. Big year for feminine hygiene. Um, Kimberly Clark Employee, which is the parent company of Kotex eventually, has this apocryphal story that John Williamson was an employee there. He had poked some holes into a condom and put the filling from a pad inside the condom and was like, what could we do with this? And (laughs) the apocryphal story is that the owner of the company was like, that's insane. We'll never do anything with that. That seems like a terrible idea. And they, they didn't, it didn't catch on, for lack of a better word. So then this cool doctor named Earl Cleveland Haas, 1931, American doctor, applies for a patent for a thing that he's calling Tampax, which comes from tampon and vaginal pack. And he makes the first modern tampon. I don't think it has what we would think of in terms of structure or shape or string or anything like that. Um... But he comes up with the idea after he's a doctor. I think he talked to, well, not only his wife, but uh, female friends of his and nurses about what they needed. And and from those conversations, developed this path. That's a radical notion. Radical concept of, like, how to market to, like, the people buying the dang thing. Um, it's apparently successful, or it's a good idea, but not successful. So... He can't get anyone to get interested into his invention. He even tries to sell it to Johnson & Johnson. They won't buy it. 
Um, so in 1933, he's like, oh, I got this patent. Who wants it? And this this Denver businesswoman who was a German immigrant named Gertrude Den- Gertrude Tendrich buys the patent for $32,000, goes to her home sewing machine, starts just cranking these out with cotton, this like little um, tampon maker. <laughs> she just makes them all from home with like cotton that she bought from the store and like sews them up herself and starts selling them. And she becomes the founder of the modern Tampax business. She's apparently quite the little story. She's She had, didn't just buy, she bought another patent. Um, she was a wise investor in the 30s. I couldn't find more about her, mm-hmm. but I think she would be interesting. She kind of had a good eye for opportunity in that way of like, this is an untapped market. If I get in here, I know the value of this thing. I'm going to make it yeah. work. And it was on the up and up and sold. Yeah. So he sold it for 30000 I think he made something. Uh, Dr. Haas uh, made another relevant uh, a device, but I can't remember what it was right now. Mm-hmm. I wonder too if there's like something about Denver. Because I remember Madam C.J. Walker at some point ends up out there for a couple of years. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Is, is something in the water out there? So they sold that in um, October 16, 1933. 1936, the first Tampax tampon with applicator was produced and the first advertisement appears. So here we go. Uh, In American Weekly on Sunday, July 26th. In the first seven years of its time on the market, their use increased five times, fivefold, I should say. And even though... Okay, so then they had to, um, due to the war effort, they had to concentrate their manufacturing into um, uh, surgical dressings and bandages for the war effort. They still met their demand and increased it throughout the war years because what did you have? You had a lot of women who had to go to jobs Mm -hmm. and had to take care of themselves in a different way. So their business demand was just out of this world. So they only had a growth market through the whole austere war years, which is sort of indicative of the need, I find. Mm -hmm. Another uh, kind of tampon was invented at the same time by a German doctor named Dr. Judith Esser Mittag. And it's what you would see in the store now as the OB tampon, which is basically a Mm non-applicator, which you don't need an applicator for the record. OB stands for, in German, the, the, the two words which I unbind, which means no pad. So... She sells her invention to a company that eventually buys it from Johnson & Johnson. And so now we have the two juggernauts of um, industry vying for this huge untapped market. Mm-hmm. 1945, we get the first research on tampons. So to be clear, no one was actually doing any research before this time. Woof. Um, because can you imagine how, who would be doing the research? What even questions would they be asking? It would be a nightmare. So I'm. It's kind of good. It's kind of bad. It's all. They have some odd. Uh, there's some odd moments in the '60s of like trying to make it better, but like you can't really. There's a reason the OB tampon like is the same. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's fine for what it is. There's not. There doesn't need to be a whole lot of change. So why why are we getting fancy with it? But Kotex. But the world of marketing is such that we gotta make it. We gotta we gotta spin it around. We gotta make something new. What do people need it to be? So. I don't know why. There's at one point the Kotex like makes one where there's like a stick on the end. Like a, it looks like a lollipop. <laughs> it looks weird. And then, then for some reason in the middle of the 60s and 70s, they're like, they're like put two strings on it. You Maybe you need a spare string just in case, you know? What if one breaks off? You just got to be ready, you know? Okay, okay. So they're just throwing some, they're just throwing some stuff at it. See what sticks. Nothing sticks. And then we get into um, 
the the modern age of like synthetic materials and this is where it gets crazy to me so in 1975 these tampons come out called rely and rely are like a a game changer because they have this new synthetic material um and they're made to for the most part before this i think tampons are kind of only expanded in a certain direction one way these expanded always so it's sort of hyper absorbent made of materials that were even like I think they were like hydrophilic, so they were just out of this world mm-hmm. efficient on what they were designed to do. Um, and because of this sort of like space agey technology, look at what we can do with modern science. Use these. And uh, they rolled out these like test packages across the country of like, try these, try these. They're amazing. Tell your friends, tell your sister, tell your girlfriends, tell your mom. They're amazing. And so all these women start trying them and they're doing the word of mouth thing. They're like, oh, it's amazing. You don't have to take one out for like days. You don't even have to. You can have one the whole week and you're fine. Fine. Totally fine. And um, I don't know if you know anything about science, uh, especially with this area of the human body, but uh, not okay to leave something in your body for a week at a time without changing it out. I was going to say like... The thing I, I very much remember from like middle school health is like you have to change tampons regularly. Otherwise you get, is it toxic shock syndrome? It is specifically tied to this issue in this 1975 to 1980 where this tampon was released with this crazy absorbent chemical in it or material in it that had cellulose. It was like biodegradable and fine or like um, technically like a material that wasn't, you know, carcinogenic by any means or, you know, we'll get into that in a second. But um, it was so absorbent that it took everything out of you and would, and, and not an, an internal organ should not be, um, dry, dry for lack of a better word. It shouldn't be messed with to that degree, I guess is the way to describe it. Mm-hmm. So without conducting tests and without, um, having FDA approval, I mean, it should also be noted that the year that they come out is the year that the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act rolls out saying that tampons are now medical devices. So as Rely was becoming a thing, they weren't considered medical devices and therefore they didn't have to subscribe to certain standards. Mm-hmm. They were just a thing, that you a cosmetic-y thing that you had and you don't need to really get too into it. Um, that year, 1975 or six, uh, the... Congress imposes stricter regulations on those specific, um, on American-made tampons to say that they are now medical devices and therefore have more rigor. So Rely gets it, or Rely gets in right under the way, right under the line of mm-hmm. that. What I find fascinating is once you classify something as a medical device, you do have new legislation, um, which means that cosmetics and like makeup, mascara. Um, any kind of application to your face for for makeup purposes has to list ingredients on your packaging. Medical devices, you do not have to list ingredients. Do you find that fascinating? Yeah. I I guess it's because like... Your shampoo, your mascara, you have to know what's in that. I don't have... You don't have to know what's in a tampon. That is fascinating. According to this weird outdated rule. So both, it was it was an odd thing where it all of a sudden had more regulations on it, but this wasn't one of them. 
So we'll get into that in the 90s. But um, so rely tampons are out. They're banging. They're, everybody's enjoying them. They're changing lives across the country. And then I forget exactly that. Let me let me look at this really quick. So there's there's this uh, growing health concern along with like modern, like holistic life uh, growing of like, what's in our products? What are you doing with these? Are you actually testing these before you like, make us put them in our bodies? Also, like women's health organizations are starting to form and be like, what is going on with these? And they don't have answers. Um in 1979, 55 cases of toxic shock, toxic shock syndrome are reported to the CDC. Uh, it's not quite clear yet on the correlation, so they start doing research into it. Of like, this seems like a high number. What do all these people have in common? Mm-hmm. Let's be clinical and scientists about this because we're the CDC. And over a year, they do a research study, and by 1980, they published this study, citing that they found the common link was tampon use in these people, and overwhelmingly, the people that died more often were using Rely tampons. So within a few months of that study coming out, they shelve that product and instantly w- take it back and are like, no, no, no. And a couple of the cases, I think one specific case of a woman who died got a settlement of $300,000 from the company saying that, you know, they were at fault for not testing this product more um, and putting appropriate labels on their product before releasing them to the general public. To some people as young as... 12, 13 years old that could potentially use this product. So the danger isn't for just, you know, grown independent women. It's, you know, teen girls too, you know? So that's a whole, that's a whole situation as well. Uh, In 1983, 2,200 cases of TSS had been reported. 80% of them were women using tampons. That's when the link starts happening. That's when you start to see, um, a change in the industry too to be like oh we need to maybe do some more research and label this on um and also there's a there's a once they start doing research about their product they're like oh we should make different sizes and we should do um we should put a warning label we should put instructions about how to use them and for how long and all of the things you would do with anything else you put in your body you know basic identifiers that could maybe help Exactly. Especially around a product surrounding and shame and bias and, you know, a really closed off culture using them. Um, in 1983, tampons go to space. My famous story with Sally Ride, which I think I've shared with you before, but she's going for a week. They're prepping. She's, they're not had dealt with a female astronaut before. So they, in their due diligence, ask her how many she needs and they go we were thinking a hundred is that fine and she goes (laughs) yeah um that's more than fine if all of us are women and it's all of nasa goes with me i don't know (laughs) i'm trying to think of like what the average use is i think a box you buy has like 36 and the box is good for a couple months Mm -hmm. at least depending on who you are and what's going on with you and how you're feeling that month you know depends but Never have I bought 100 tampons at once. I'll put it back. Never. <laughs> to go through in a week. Never. Not even going to Costco. To go through in like one session. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> Just wild. Where'd they put them all? So many. <laughs> um, 1985, Courtney Cox is the first one to say the word period in a TV commercial for Tampax, which I find fascinating. Wow. Yeah. 1985. Yeah. Courtney Cox, who we know. In our lifetime, you know? What did they... It's wild. 
what did they say before that? Like, how how did they talk around it's it? It's all like, it's all like you know, it's it's that hidden language. It's that euphemism stuff of like, can you get a day away? And then it's just like the brand awareness is all you need. So if you say Kotex, if you say Playtex, if you say Tampax, there's so many X's. Yeah. Why are there so many X's with periods? That's a great question because it's just like wow. That that's like similar vocabulary to. Or at least it sounds similar to like condom brands to me in terms of like the oh. sort of like a little bit descriptive, a little bit playful and like some like X E yeah. sounds. Yeah. I'm going to have to, we'll come back next week and I'll have answered that. 1989, um, the FDA orders manufacturers to implement the standardization system of ratings of absorbency to help the consumer understand what they're buying and uh, what is most efficient for them. And then the 90s, we get into like a harder debate of like what is in these products. Tell us for the, for some reason, these companies are famously tight-lipped about what they're using in a tampon. So there's all of the, I mean, I don't encourage you to do it because it's a little demoralizing where you're going on and you're like, is dioxin bad? And there's some studies that say dioxin is a carcinogen and then all of the tampon manufacturers are like, yeah, but we're not putting it in there with a lot of it. Like, it's fine. And we're just trying to, like, make the thing sterile to be used. So there's all these, like, chemical procedures to sterilize the cotton and other materials that they can't tell us what they are. There's other things besides cotton. So what are those, you know? And for the most part, it's, like, other absorbent materials that are, you know, it's not, like, razor blades or something crazy but Mm -hmm. for some reason there's there's a trade secrets or something uh, that they won't necessarily they are not commanded to like list there's 25 percent cotton and 15 percent uh nylon thread and this and that so a lot of health focused consumers are made a lot of um organizational groups in the 90s specifically to like Tell us what's in them. Tell us what you're doing. How are you cleaning them? How are you bleaching them? Are Is there chlorine involved? That was a big mm-hmm. demon uh, in the industry of like, this is going to be bad for us. So in the 90s, major tampon brands switched from dioxide producing chlorine gas bleaching methods to elemental chlorine free or totally chlorine free bleaching processes to help uh, standardize their um, mm-hmm. sanitation and cleanliness, I guess. So... Yeah, um, now I want to kind of get into, like, the sort of hit items about what you hear in the news more often than not with tampons is, like, the tampon tax. Mm-hmm. Are we going to talk about the Scotland? The tax. I don't have it. I was, I was focused on America, but you could talk about Scotland if you want. Because Britain and Scotland are kind of in. Uh, I think I ju- just noting that, like, they just passed a law, I think, like, yesterday making feminine hygiene products freely available to anyone who needs them in the whole country. Oh, oh, very advanced, very advanced. We are not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about how it's still trash other places. Great. But um, that's awesome, Scotland. Way to go. So tax law, I don't pretend to know it very well. I don't think anybody knows it super well. I think we're all kind of hitting around in the dark with it when it comes to understanding why taxes are what they are. I don't envy the government having to decide like how to tax people because it's just a nightmare. Yeah. But one such item that is taxed, the way I understand it, is uh, menstrual products, both pads and tampons, are considered in tax law, not perception, 
not governmental perception, as luxury goods. Uh, luxury goods consist of non-essential voluntary items that you buy because you want, right? Not that you need them. Things that are not taxed that are considered necessary are medicines, um, pills, food, uh, you know, grocery items, things like that, that you can't look at them and be like, oh, a human being needs that to live, mm -hmm. so we can't put an extra tax on a need, you know, even though we kind of do. There's some kind of boundaries with that. So currently in 36 out of 50 states, tampons and pads are seen as those items. So it is a common thing coming up in a lot of state legislatures every couple sessions that someone will introduce a ban of what they call the tampon tax or the pink tax. Mm -hmm. And the logic of it is that it is not a voluntary item. It is a necessary item for women and people who menstruate to participate in society without having to like feel shame or have to make special considerations for themselves. It lets you just kind of get on with your day um, in the same way that an, I don't know a male equivalent so or a masculine equivalent. And the fact that there isn't probably is probably pretty telling. Well, yeah. Well, I think the fact that Viagra isn't taxed in the same way that tampons are is indicative of the problem. It's that thing of like there is no male equivalent and the male is the standard. So then female is special or like has to be considered as different or unique or with an asterisk by it, mm -hmm. you know? Anyway, you're seeing these repeals come up. And, and like I said, like not every state has the tampon tax. In, in 18 or so states, they're, they're they have repealed it already. So it is a title shift. It is because, you know, we're all willing to say things out loud now that we weren't 50 years ago and look at the numbers. Um, I will say the reason I felt for the government in reading this, especially like in a pandemic where I was like, can you imagine trying to balance a state budget right now? And you like want to have it make sense monetarily. Mm -hmm. It would it would make your brain explode because you just can't. And someone goes like, "Hi, I want to repeal this tax." By the way, California will lose twenty million dollars if you take away the tampon tax. And the governor—I'm not saying California governor is thinking this at all. A governor would be like, "Cool, so I guess we won't pave roads next year." You know what I mean? Like it's that's way too simple to look at mm -hmm. it. But I just I don't envy that process at all. Yeah, but. At least, according to UNICEF, 500 million uh, people are estimated to lack the means to manage their monthly periods as of 2015 in the world. And I think if half of the people, well, not about half of the people have to deal with this thing every month, then I think it's a human need <laughs> that needs to get figured out. So... One place you're seeing it is in the legislatures. Another place you're seeing it is in wider repeals of that kind of, or not repeals, but actions by Scotland to like make it medically necessary. You're seeing it in the prison system where um, I read, I think it was in Arizona, a uh, women's prison had to go to bat and say, they were uh, regulated to get 12 pads every month per prisoner. Which is, I mean, I said 100 was too many, but like 12 is also like dicey. Mm -hmm. um, and they're government issued, so I'm sure they're outstanding quality. Um, I guess the main point is like you had to go through 18 million steps to get what you might need. Like you needed to advocate for yourself and then they needed to 
decide that you could have it. Mm-hmm. And you're being paid nine cents an hour before taxing it. So the idea of like you being able to then supplement what you could was just unheard of. But they were able to like take them to court and get an allowance to up the number to 36 a month. So that was a thing I read that made me a little bit hopeful. And then another area that I found fascinating was um, about in the United States right now, about 200,000 people are home, uh, women are homeless, but homeless shelters aren't required to give out menstrual products. So it is, they are also more expensive um, in general than some of the other products that people feel okay about donating. One of the biggest requested items is pads or tampons. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking in this time of holiday giving... (laughs) Of what could I do to give back? This is a thing that I don't think comes to your mind right away, but is clearly a necessity for a lot of people and financially hard um, for some folks to do, especially now. So if you want a kind of out of the box thing that could actually really make somebody's day a lot better, um, maybe it's that. And then the last thing I'll leave you with is that I did see a public health initiative in the UK where in public bathrooms... I think it was a charitable organization, started putting boxes um, next to the sink, basically advocating that, like, the right to these products is is indicative of your worth as a human. So here's here's a place where you can access free um, free pads as, as needed, and we won't charge you for it. And if you can give any money to help supply this for future people, um, just let us know. And they're kind of putting that in a lot of the public restrooms across Mm -hmm. the city. Very cool. Which I found super helpful. But yeah, wild ride. It's a wild ride. Yeah, it definitely falls under that thing of like, you really think this would have been something we had figured out earlier, just given how many people deal with it. Yeah. Um, The fascinating thing I read was an Atlantic article where the writer started by saying a guy went on to Reddit with those ask me anythings. And he was like, hi, I help develop new tampons. Um, ask me anything. I won't tell you what company I work for as a way of being, you know, keeping trade secrets and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you have any basic questions, let me know. And he was on there for hours, for hours and hours. And he had to finally stop because he was so tired because um, people were just asking him so, so many questions. So it seems like the ignorance is everywhere about this particular topic. I think the last thing I'll say is uh, there are new developments. I think the last major kind of change to a tampon was sort of the Tampax Pearl and the like Tampax Compact, the plastic applicator Mm -hmm. and the like condensed feature. But the thing I sent you yesterday as I was doing research was just the advertising surrounding these products and how bananas it is. They were wild. And I didn't. I didn't even think about it until they started talking about the Dove beauty in the... Uh, anyway, I won't I won't talk about Dove. But um, all of the language around the products being, like, secretive and quiet and, like, shush, don't talk about it. And, like, you want discreet. You want discretion. You want da-da-da-da-da. It's just making me think about those advertisements differently mm-hmm. now as I go about my life. And, like, f- feminine products versus masculine products and, like... The Old Spice ad versus, like, Lady Speed Stick and, like, those kinds of marketing trends and the the pink tax, as it were, which extends to other things, which is, like, a 7% markup on things that are marketed towards mm-hmm. women that there's a male equivalent to. So, anyway, I got into that whole thing. It's just, like, 
It spirals. Yeah. Yeah. That's feminine hygiene. Questions, Michael? Just the like the same one I think I have at the end of every episode, which is like, what are we doing to women and people with uteruses? No, why don't we ask anyone? I'm I'm just shocked that like I thought I thought I would find like an ancient medieval text of like some weirdo doctor that decided to write everything down and had some weird remedy. But it's just like such a basic human need that it was pretty basic for a really long time. Yeah. You know, and because it's a woman's private areas, like everyone had an opinion about what was not right to do, um, which I'm glad I didn't spend too much time on because it's a waste of space and doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I guess the biggest thing with with this is just um, as we go into like a 2020 world is just uh, sustainability questions that are coming up with these kinds of products. Mm-hmm. That's the next great frontier, I think, is like right now a lot of. Um, material and product around these are not sustainable in a way that's um, eco-friendly. Because it's like very much single use. Very much single use, but also some of the materials within it make it non-biodegradable. And yes, cotton is for the most part in these products, but a lot of it is synthetic, cellulose, plastic-infused, non-recyclable, non-compostable. So, and they're in cardboard boxes and they're single use and all of these things. So the trend of the industry, I think, is just like, or at least like people with, you know, a thought about that. How do we navigate that? Because it is a tremendous need, similar to what we will do with toothbrushes, where it's a thing of plastic building up. And like, I think we throw away like a billion toothbrushes a year um, that can't sustain yeah because with the shampoo stuff there's similarly like a conversation happening right now about like going back to past practices in a way as a sort of yeah a solution to some of the issues that like modern beauty products have left us and i'm curious like if any of those conversations around tampons or pads involves like going back to things that are like washable and reusable similar to like older methods there i mean those those products exist i didn't do as much research on them but those products exist. I would say the things that I know about are like there's um, something called a cup, a menstrual cup, which I don't know if you've seen or heard of. It's small silicone, reusable. I think they have some of them have a three year lifespan. Some of them say you can have them for much longer. There's, there's a lot of information out there. And then there's um, a lot of inventions with like clothing. Mm-hmm. So they're starting to make underwear that is basically like already acts as a pad and you just have to wash it and make sure it's so to have the lifespan of like a normal garment Mm -hmm. um so those are better options and they're by no means the most popular i would say based on the research i saw most of it is still because of the scare of the 1980s most of it is women uh um, most of it is pad use and then tampons and then these alternative methods but Mm -hmm. market research is always kind of tampax has a menstrual cup for sale that you can get at a grocery store that's new by them so they're trying to like play to all the markets mm-hmm. um but you see a lot of s- these like internet startup places trying to kind of spawn this new phase of product options i guess yeah so that's it anyway wild ride shall we take a break let's do it Like,
like I, I knew so much of it is new, but it's so new. It's genuinely because we all wore dresses that were shorter than the floor <laughs> and got jobs. That's why. <laughs> That's it jobs really does it. Jobs and like pants wearing and all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I need a more I've got things to do. I need a more efficient situation than like pinning this stuff together anyway. It always comes back to pants. Yeah, I kept wanting to find I kept wanting to find like a weird or like a cultural difference thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I was like, what do you do in this area? What do you do? And everyone was just like, no, nah, we all kind of do the same stuff. You find some plants that work around you and make do. And then once we started figuring out fabric, we all made the fabric that worked. So I was like, okay. Just kind of, that's, it's nice that that, like, there's so few things that are like actually universal human experiences. And it is kind of cool that like the solutions everyone seems to have come up with for that do seem to be pretty much the same. I just love that for the longest time they were like, this could be used as a contraceptive. And the women were like, can we just use it for like, yeah, sure. Yes. Contraceptive. Always great. Can we also have it for the thing that happens to us regularly? And they're like, no, we just want it for the contraceptive part. It's like, no, we would like the thing. Let's make both. Let's just make both. How about that? We, we have a need. No, we're not going to meet that need. No, No, we're just gonna do the thing we want to do, which is control your body a little bit more. Maybe in a little bit. You're fine. How bad can it be? All right, I'm ready for, what are we doing? Shampoo? What are we doing? Shampoo. Are we doing hair care? Hair care. I'm fascinated by this because this is where I feel my, I, I have immense guilt when I try and buy shampoo and I just think about how many plastic bottles I've thrown out over my lifetime. And do we even need it? That's my main question. Yeah. And that, that was definitely the sort of where I l- ended things was this, there's, it's called the, the no poo movement, which probably could have gotten a better name. I'm confused because we were doing toilets next week. But yes, I get it. But it's this sort of movement from people who reject, like, having to use shampoo every day as part of your daily practice. So, yeah, shampoo. I have to admit, before researching this episode, I had some vague sense of how it worked and what it, like, does. But very vague. How are you on, like, shampoo chemistry? What a long journey it's been. Uh... um i mean just it's it's a constant question like i've never had the same shampoo for more than a year i always change my shampoo because i'm always like this can't be right because everyone has such different hair i can't believe that the same soap for everyone and i think you know i don't know i have very fine hair so you know it's a constant journey i'll say that Mm -hmm. and conditioner is a must but then, like, are you buying conditioner because the shampoo takes out everything that the conditioner is supposed to do? So then you have to buy the conditioner. You know what I mean? Is it all a marketing tactic? It's right. There's That's sort of this huge question in the shampoo world is, is it just a marketing tactic versus how much of it is, like, yeah. good for your hair versus, like, isn't bad, isn't good, but is just to make more money? I definitely, like, f- I feel better about my hair if I shampoo and condition as opposed to just shampooing. But I feel, mm-hmm. at least for a chunk of time, fine if I just, like, rinse my hair and don't shampoo at all. Yeah, I'm not an everyday shampooer. I've heard that that's bad. I definitely let it go a couple days. But I'll still, like, shower it. I mean, rinse it, you know, and, like, scrub my scalp. And then maybe just condition my ends. But not shampoo it every day. Mm-hmm. 
because that feels hostile. Yes. <laughs> or been told that it's not great. Yeah. And that's because, so what, what the shampoo is doing is it's actually like t- pulling the oil out of our hair. And that's the thing I hadn't quite realized is that the, like what really makes a shampoo a shampoo is it has these things that are specifically designed just to like basically connect the oil in your hair to the water. So when you wash your hair, the oil goes out with it. And that that's why your hair kind of feels a little dry after you've shampooed if you don't condition. Just because like the shampoo is taking a lot uh-huh. of that oil out. And the conditioner sort of puts some stuff back in to make it feel right. silky smooth. And you want some oil. You want some oil, but you don't want all the oil. Right. Because, like, what the oil is doing is it's, like, protecting your scalp and your hair from damage, but it's also picking up, like, dirt and pollen and, like, odors. Like, if you've been around a campfire, your hair is going to smell like smoke kind of a thing. And so, similar to menstrual products, this is one of those things that, like, everyone sort of did something about hair, basically as long as we have historical records. Because I think we all have that experience of, like, haven't showered for longer than we wanted to, haven't washed our hair, and it's just unpleasant. Or at least for me, it feels unpleasant at a certain point. Yeah, you just you just feel gross. I think that was the hygiene question of just, like, um, everybody has the feeling of, like, feeling dirty, right? That is not a 20th century invention. Like, people felt gross before, like, showers were a thing. So what did they do to combat that? And, like, your hair... Even if you're not doing the modern shampoo, you would get greasy over a while and it would just feel nasty. Yeah. You would think. And and this is sort of my my thought. And it's interesting because the sort of solutions to this particular human problem start ranging pretty broadly earlier in human history. So like in Egypt, the solution is shave it all off and do wigs because it's a lot easier to manage and keep your hair clean if you don't have any hair and you're just taking care of the wig separately. Whereas like in ancient Greece, they would sort of use like a vinegar mixture, which helped clean it and also helped lighten it a little bit, sort of like different approaches, but all with like the end of trying to make it manageable and not feel really gross. Um, But what I found really interesting is that the sort of modern practice, sort of how we understand shampooing our hair today is the result of sort of colonial cultural exchanges but it's one of the practices that starts in the non-european world and then comes to europe as opposed to starts in europe and is pushed out to the rest of the world which is really interesting the word shampoo itself in english is a sort of misappropriation of a hindi word that is referring to the kneading motion of actually like putting shampoo into your hair so referring to the actual process of doing it um And in the Indian subcontinent, there's this long history of using like herbs and gooseberry and ferns that are boiled together and then strained and using that to sort of lather the hair. Whereas in Indonesia, it's a mixture of burnt rice husk and straw that's mixed together with water. You then use that to clean the hair. You wash the ash mixture out and then put coconut oil in as sort of a conditioner. God, could you imagine? Wait. Ash? Yeah, apparently the like chemical compounds in it do, they sort of serve a similar purpose to the sort of more soapy end of things. But you then obviously have to like wash the ash out as well. In South America, they're used the sort of soapy byproduct that you get when you rinse quinoa as a shampoo. Uh, and in North America, indigenous tribes used 
fern extract uh, that sort of boiled and concentrated as well. So there's all sorts of people all over the world doing different things to manage basically like the oil levels in their hair. And there's often sort of commentary from those groups when Europeans arrive that in addition to like Europeans smelling bad, which is just this sort of consistent comment that people make, particularly like that their hair was kind of gross. And so that tracks Europeans sort of really run into shampoo as like a, as a practice in India and they really enjoy this sort of ritual daily bath that comes with a like shampoo and head massage. And so they, you know, when they return to Europe, talk about this are very excited about this. And so in about 1814, an uh, Indian surgeon named Sheikh Dean Muhammad travels to Britain and opens the first shampoo parlor, we might call it, in Brighton, which is this sort of like holiday town okay. in England. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, a shampoo parlor just makes me laugh. Like I think of like an old timey soda fountain mm-hmm. with like the barbershop mixed in i guess they were all the same time frame i get yeah yeah okay. and that's that is actually ex- exactly how europeans are going to encounter shampooing for the next couple of decades it's not something you do at home because most people don't have running water at home so it's a challenging thing to bathe to begin with rather you like you go to your barber or your hair salon and as part of the you know general upkeep they will shampoo you so it's like a public thing sort of like similar like to like getting your hair cut you do it on a sort of similar schedule in a way Mm -hmm. okay okay i mean how often is that so that's like what once a month now or even longer six weeks probably even longer like people i don't think were getting their hair cut quite as frequently in the past um but also at the same time like you'd also go to like get or at least men would go to get shaved a little bit more frequently so there's I think there's sort of some flexibility, um, but definitely you would not get it done daily or probably even weekly. Uh, and there's like a lot of concern about being too clean at this point because we still haven't quite figured out germ theory. And so we're still operating under this idea that having a little bit of like dirt and other things on you helps keep sickness out. Yeah, like a like a little shield. Yeah, exactly. Little dirt shield. And so people are still like a little hesitant about being too clean. Uh, but there's this like dramatic collection of things that happens in the late 1800s that really lets shampoo take off. The biggest one, of course, is like indoor plumbing. Once you have running water in your home, you're much more willing to clean yourself regularly because it doesn't involve hauling water and having to heat it and doing all the rigmarole to get a bath. Mm -hmm. You can just turn on a tap and have running water ready to go. Um, And so that becomes more widespread in the late 18 and early 1900s. At the same time, shampoo technology is getting better. I think I didn't really think of shampoo (laughs) as a technology necessarily, but it goes from being basically just like shaved bits of soap boiled in water with some fragrances to being something that is custom made specifically for cleaning people's hair shampoo technology is getting better yes running water exists yes so shampoo technology is getting better so the big leap forward is in 1898 german chemist invents powdered shampoo so rather than having to take soap 
like physically shave it and boil it together. You can just buy a tin of powdered shampoo, mix it with some water, you're ready to go. It's also like a little bit less aggressive on your hair, which people like because sort of if you've ever put just like straight up soap in your hair, I don't know why you would have done, but apparently it's mm-hmm. like not the most pleasant experience. Um, and then the like next big breakthrough is in 1900 conditioner gets released, which sort of helps solve this problem that like, I think a lot of people experience if you just shampoo, your hair gets this like weird sort of dried out feeling conditioner helps make that feel better. gets that nice shiny look going on it. Um, and then the sort of final big step is liquid shampoo, which is introduced in the late 1920s and early 1930s in Germany. And is the logic of that like, oh, it's easier to use the liquid of it? It just like it gets to suds faster. I'm, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's my understanding of it. I think particularly because the old technology involved having to take something, mix it with water, and then like make it just to use it. I think the other big advantage of liquid shampoo is it's shelf stable. Like it's always ready to use whenever you want. You don't have to do any prep with it. You can just like stick it in your bathroom and have it ready to go. Mm, Yeah. Okay. So what year are we in with the liquid shampoo? Late 1920s, early 1930s. So is it coming in jars or what? Yeah, that's a great question. I, it obviously will at some point fairly soon start coming in plastic bottles, but there's, yeah, there's this weird in between time where you do have liquid. So I would imagine glass because it would be like a weird thing to put in a tin, which would be the other technology at that point. Yeah. But that does feel like a little dangerous if you're in the shower with it. Yeah, glass jar. Yeah. Well, I just don't think there's any like hand pumps or anything. You gotta like, like a Winnie the Pooh honey jar, like scoop it out and put it on your head. I don't know. Okay, so that's earlier than I thought. I thought that would have been like, I don't know, 1920s, man. Yeah, lots so of- when we got our hygiene in order. We did. And the thing I, I think I found really interesting about that is it's, So there's the technology in the home you need. There's the sort of like technology with the cleaning items. And then there's also like you need Mm -hmm. a cultural shift, right? Like people also have to care about being clean and investing time and money into that. And in the U.S. at least, that there's a pretty marked shift at like the end of the 19th into the 20th century, where prior to that, people sort of looked at if you bathed regularly, you were very like effeminate and European and that wasn't like an American value necessarily. Well, and right after the world first world war, when they're all over there fighting together, like that's when cultures clash. And also you take things home with you Mm -hmm. that you didn't, that all of a sudden becomes part of the culture. Yeah. And the other part of it is it's about building sort of difference between quote unquote, like native born Americans and immigrants is that often like poor urban immigrant communities don't have the resources to clean themselves as much. Whereas particularly like middle class people in the suburbs are likely to have indoor plumbing in their homes. And so very much Mm -hmm. like culturally, you get this idea that like cleanliness, like physical cleanliness is a moral value associated with one type of people and being physically unclean is an immoral value associated with other people that we want to sort of push away or make a box around. Mm, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Because, okay. it, because it's America, even the shampoo comes with a little xenophobia. Xenophobia. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just all tied to, like, class and wealth and access. I mean, all of the items that we've talked about today all start as, like, a 
extreme luxury item. Like, before this existed as a manufactured good, everyone just had to, like, figure out how to make it for themselves Mm -hmm. or have other people's make it for them at an individual level. The second it's, like, it's almost like the second it's, like, marketed, it becomes a popularity contest, too. Like, it's, it's it's the cultural statement. Like, oh, you, you buy shampoo. Oh, well, you're, I now know you can afford shampoo. Yeah, it's a status symbol. Yeah. And it's, in and addition it's, to being indicative of like wealth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's right. These are all interesting status symbols because you oftentimes like no one is watching you use your shampoo. No one is like watching you use your feminine hygiene product or your bathroom or your toothbrush. They're all things that like take place privately, but either have some result Mm. that is like publicly expressed or in the purchasing of it, it's the like cultural capital. So there's lots of like weird, interesting class dynamics playing out often like in people's bathrooms. Did the, did the mailman, did the mailman deliver you the package from Sears saying you got shampoo. So now the mailman knows how much like, Ooh, he's got that hair goop in his house. The Mm -hmm. right. And you like, Studebakers must be real rich. Yeah. And like your friends see that like you've got shampoo in your bathroom or like you're talking about the fact that you've like washed your hair twice this week. All of these things are status symbols. Or you're like, yeah, I was going to say, or you're like that insufferable person at a party that just keeps talking about themselves and how great they are and what they own, which like, what a nightmare. Okay, cool. So liquid shampoo. Yeah. And then conditioner a little bit later. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that... With the advance of plumbing. Yeah. And so the last sort of big thing that brings us to our modern understanding of shampooing is this practice of like washing your hair every day, which doesn't really become a thing until the second half of the 20th century, sort of post-World War II, as more people get access to more water and have more indoor plumbing and like more leisure time, this expectation develops that if you want to be clean, the definition of cleanliness is you showered or bathed every day. And, like, cleaning your hair becomes part of that. And that's a second half of 20th century idea? Yes. That, like... Wow. Up until, I would say, like, even this, probably the 60s, their shampoo companies are running advertisements where people are explicitly talking about how it's not bad, it's not harmful to wash your hair every day. So they're obviously trying to counter some sort of perception that doing it too much is a bad thing and now we've obviously come sort of full circle from that and now there's a debate about like is that in fact too much are you getting too clean is that now a bad thing that might i mean that seems to be where my brain is leaning i mean it's just I, i will say with the caveat of like if you're out running every day and you're like sweaty and gross you should probably shower every day if you're a more sedentary person that's not super active or like, um, I don't know, it just like depends on your gross factor too. I mean, are you a stinky person? Is your BO questionable? Like then maybe hop in the shower every day. If you're not, I mean, everyone's different, I guess is the thing. So doing one standard for everyone is maybe not the best idea. Yeah. And from like a, like a health perspective, at least like the current research, there's nothing bad about like washing your hair frequently shampoo and at the same time there's nothing good about it like it's not hurting you it's not helping you and particularly because at least most of us like we we aren't getting so gross on a daily basis that it's a health hazard like if you don't shower one day most for most of us anyway 
But I'm definitely, yeah, I'm not a washer error every day. Did you, okay, but I don't want to jump the gun. Let me know when you, when you can do a question. That's so basically the place I want to leave it is this, this sort of open. Okay. Well, there's two things. So there's this, this specific open question about like how frequently should you do it? And then if we want, we can, I think, go into a bigger conversation about like the politics of hair care, which I know we've talked about in the context of other episodes. And it's a huge, like vast topic. Vast. It was a major like white privilege moment of my life of just being like, oh, I had no idea the depth of like the depth of history and like amazing women involved in like African-American hair care and just like. Their lives in a modern sense are so different from my own in terms of like how they deal with their hair. So it was staggering to me to be like, I had no, I had just had no idea um, when I was doing Madam C.J. Walker uh, or even before that, as I became known for this, like, I never thought about you had to care about your hair in a different way than I do mine. I didn't realize it was that stark of a difference Mm -hmm. or could be depending on like the level at which you dealt with your hair. But yeah, politics of hair care. I mean... I guess my other thing is, like, I, I'm i thinking of, like, everyone I've ever <laughs> had weird conversations about this with. So there was one person I worked with who told me, like, I don't know if she had allergies or was just a hippie, um, but she washed her face with honey and I think shampooed her hair with honey, too, because honey is, like, an antimicrobial or, like, antibacterial. And she's like, that's all you need to get clean. And it's natural. And I was like, okay, but are you clean though? Because that is a very sticky substance. So like, I don't know, it's tacky. It's like akin to sap. I mean, that just doesn't seem like it's doing the thing you think it's doing. I don't know. Mm -hmm. She had great skin though. So, but then also like dealing with her as a person, I was never like, your hair looks like it's covered in honey. So it clearly was not, I don't know. Who knows anymore? I'm just very interested in um dry shampoo is my main question did you do any research on that i it didn't, feels like a scam to me but it, it does to me too i i've met some people who swear by it like they love dry shampoo yeah let me put it this way i've never put dry shampoo on my hair and been like wow it's like i showered it's more like wow there's more stuff in my hair mm-hmm so I guess it's kind of, I mean, I guess it just helps with, there's like an aroma, there's like a, I think it's all psychosomatic. Yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to buy drink shampoo again. I just don't think it works. I, and similarly, like for me anyway, the thing I'm concerned about with my hair is less like, does it look clean or shiny or those things? But like, is it controllable? And for me, like I need to shower, I need to get it wet in order to be able to work with it. And so like, I could care less. Oh. If it's got, like, shampoo in it and, like, it's clean, but if it's not, if it's a mess, yeah. I, like, can't do anything with it unless I've showered. Yeah. I would say the latest journey my hair has gone on is away from heat, away from, like, um, hair dryers and straighteners and curling irons. Mm-hmm. And that's been more dramatic than a- what I was thinking I was doing with shampoo and conditioner. It was like, oh, no, it was the heat the whole time. Mm-hmm. There we go. Too hot for too long on very thin hair. Got it. Don't do that anymore. But yeah, now that I know, but it's also, oh, wow. Okay, great. I would say my prejudice going into this, not realizing it was like, I don't think you should shampoo your hair every day. But hearing you say like, no one's really sure. It's probably fine. It's probably not. Like a a pressure has been lifted in a weird way where it's like, no, do what's right for you. And 
there's nothing like clearly bad about it. So yeah, I think for for me, the change I want to bring into my life is like, I want to start using bar shampoo and conditioner, just to like, cut down Mm -hmm. on like, plastic use and water use and stuff like that. But otherwise, I'm like, I'm comfortable with the amount of times a week, I wash my hair. And that's the important part. Yeah. Yeah, I think I had some oh, I had some uh, like a bottle of shampoo and conditioner I hadn't used yet when I moved. So this is the last plastic bottles I hope to use. And then I want to go to um, bars as well because I use bar soap in the shower anyway. I've gotten away from body wash and it's fine. It's fine. Dove soap is great. Just use Dove. That's all you need. It smells good. Cleans. It's in a bar. You're done. Or ivory or like whatever you want. But like use a bar. Because I was just, yeah, there's so many, I was just, when it was when I was like cleaning out my medicine cupboard or like the linen closet where all the stuff you collect in a bathroom is. And I was just throwing away all of these bottles of things that I'd never use, which I know I am not alone in that habit because everything comes in a plastic bottle in your bathroom. I was just like, there has to be a better way to do this. And I'm not inconvenienced by like the powder idea or, you know, a, a bar or... That doesn't seem like that much extra work. Yeah. I did read, though, with the bar soap, like, one of the conventions of it was that it was seen as less sanitary because it's sitting out and exposed to things. But by its very nature, it repels things that would cling to it. So that doesn't hold a lot of weight. Yeah. Even if something collects on a bar of soap, by the time you lather it, you've taken it off. It's on your hands. You're washing it, and then it's rinsed off. So that's not valid mm-hmm. it's probably safe for your shampoo bar and condi- do they make conditioner bars too apparently they do i really want to get one and try it out oh okay when we're done we should trade where they exist i'm never gonna buy a drink of shampoo again i think that's what i learned today that feels like a great takeaway i think i'm gonna remember to put right pads in my stage manager's kit because all i have right now is tampons and i didn't know there was like that big a difference in usage and now i do and we'll stock both i mean i was surprised to see like more pads are used than tampons i was surprised by that but you know there's a lot of people out there using them so yeah it's different everywhere cool all right phase one of hygiene done very excited for the next episode next week toilets and toothbrushes which should never go together no why do we put toothbrushes near the place that toilets are that's a great question why Uh, do we do that to ourselves i have people who like keep their toothbrush in their bedroom because they don't want to deal with that that's fair I, I don't, even though I know it. But we're all not dropping dead from that right now, so clearly it's fine. Yeah, there are other, there are probably other grosser things we do. There's there's other health concerns going on in the world right now than where our toothbrushes live, I think. Just a few. <laughs> okay, Michael. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm glad we, like, scratched this hygiene itch we had for a while of, like, what did we do? Yeah, me too. I had so much fun researching this episode. Till next time, then. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions of people you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you liked the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Jen, Catherine, and Marion for all their help on this project. Thank you for listening to Missing History.